Welcome to Multilingual Montessori, a podcast where we discuss multilingualism, multiculturalism, and raising children from a Montessori perspective. I'm Gabrielle Kutkov, an AMI Montessori guide and TESOL instructor with a master's in child studies, and I'm the founder of Multilingual Montessori. You can find me on Instagram at multilingual.montessori and at multilingualmontessori.org. Today I'm revisiting a conversation I had with Hannah Ewart Crocker back in October of 2021. Hannah is a former Montessori child who worked as the director of the farm school program at the Denver Montessori Junior Senior High School for seven years. In this conversation, Hannah shared incredible insights about Montessori at the adolescent level, the joys and challenges of running a public Montessori program, and what she loves about working with adolescents. Hannah also shared her thoughts about what it was like growing up with a mother who is a trained Montessorian and her experiences teaching a bilingual English-Spanish yoga class in Denver, Colorado. If you've never heard of a Montessori middle or high school, you're not alone. Montessori adolescent programs are still very few and far between. However, there is now a Montessori training program for adolescent teachers, so hopefully there will be more programs opening in the future for families interested in continuing Montessori beyond the early years in elementary. Since we recorded this episode almost two years ago, I've spent more time with adolescents in a Montessori context, so it was really interesting to listen back to what Hannah and I had discussed about adolescent brain development and how we can best support adolescents at school and at home. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Hannah. I'm Hannah Ewart Crocker. I live in Denver, Colorado. Although I grew up in Northeast Ohio where I attended Montessori school, from age two to 15. I've been in Denver for about 12 years and I was a founding teacher and program director for the farm school program at Denver Montessori Junior Senior High School, which is a public school here in Denver that serves students from grades seven to 12. So I worked as the director of the grade seven to nine program. We call that the farm school. I did leave that work in 2020 to take some time off and reassess what my next steps were. So right now I'm doing several different things, but most of what I'm doing is coaching and consulting in Montessori programs, both supporting current programs, adolescent guides and adolescent leaders specifically, or leaders in adolescent programs, and then also supporting some organizations that are doing school startup work, especially in the charter and public sector. Oh man. So, okay. We're going to get into all of that. First, I just want to, I want to tell everyone our connection is kind of funny. So we went to college together and we were in choir together and, you know, we're, we were different years and, you know, lost touch as one does when you graduate from college. And then I want to say probably 10 years after I grad maybe 10 years after you graduated, we ran into each other at a Montessori conference. And then that is how I found out that you were in the Montessori world, had been a Montessori child, were now running this program, and I was a Montessori teacher at the time. So I love that connection. It's such a small world. You never know who you're going to run into at a Montessori conference, really. (laughs) 
Yeah, and the intersection of people who went to really small liberal arts schools who also end up in Montessori education, I think is even smaller. Yeah. So it was very exciting to me <laughs> to run yeah. into you and for you to be like, I went to Vassar, like we have this in common, which is really, really great. So yeah. I know, I love that. I love that connection. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. So, okay, so walk me through your Montessori journey. What do you remember about going to Montessori school as a child? Um, I know your mom is a Montessorian, so I would love to hear about that too. And then what made you decide to go into Montessori? Well, Montessori has been a part of my life since before I can remember. By the time I was born, I have an older brother. He was already attending a young child community. And so I started in the young child community at Hershey Montessori School in Northeast Ohio when I was around two. And like so many people who come to Montessori, my mom arrived to Montessori because she wanted something different and amazing for her own kids. So I had this incredible privilege of having a Montessori education all the way from the young child community up until my ninth grade year. I was one of the first classes um, at the Hershey Farm School campus. So there are two campuses at the at Hershey Montessori School, one is a lower school, which is young child community through sixth grade through upper L, and then this uh, secondary campus, which is grades seven to 12. So the school was literally built around me as I was a young adolescent, which is amazing. And then, of course, I swore off ever going into education myself or becoming a teacher. I was like, definitely not for me. I had this fear that Montessori teachers like only beget other Montessori teachers. <laughs> so I was like, I have to do something else with this privileged education that I had. Um, what do I remember about being in Montessori school? It's funny because like all of my memories of childhood have Montessori as the context and background. So I don't really have anything to compare it to, but I have a lot of memories of spaces, right? Physical environments, both in school and also in my home. Um, I remember everything was always organized, <laughs> right? Lots of organization, lots of beauty. I spent a lot of time outside, um, both as, as a just young person living in the world and then also in school. I remember, from like, I remember loving learning from the very beginning. There was almost never a time in my life when I was not wanting to learn more. I remember a lot of opportunity for choice and freedom of movement and things like that. Yeah. Um, how did I get to Montessori, my own training? I moved to Denver in 2009, right after I graduated. And I was working in community organizing and neighborhood development in Commerce City, which is a city just outside of Denver. It has a lot of industrial companies and a lot of pretty segregated neighborhoods. And so I was working primarily with Spanish speaking families to do leadership trainings and um, develop neighborhood associations and organizations that could empower families and parents to do really good, important work in their communities. And it was really incredible, but I don't think it was like the thing that made me super excited in the world. Um, I was invited to help found and start this new program in Denver Public Schools. This was in 2013. And I was like, no, I don't wanna be a teacher at this place. Like, I don't wanna be a teacher. Over time, I just sat with the fact that 
education really was the intersection of all these challenges that our society faces and all these things I really deeply cared about. And I would get really fired up about how the structure of this program should be. I was like, it has to do this and it has to be like this. And I realized that I cared about it pretty much more than anything else I was doing at the time. Mm. So I, when I was invited to apply to be a teacher, finally I did. And then I attended the adolescent orientation that AMI was putting on, which also was directed by my mom at the time. So I went home in 2013 to take the five week orientation and uh, do that in preparation for our opening. And then a couple years into our opening as a school, I took on a leadership role. I took on what we call program director of the farm school program. And we all decided as a leadership team that it would be really beneficial to have multiple folks on the leadership team with AMI diplomas. There wasn't an adolescent diploma at the time. And so I agreed to do an additional training really to understand more deeply Dr. Montessori's philosophy and observations of children throughout their entire development. So I kicked zero to three assistance to infancy, partly because it was here in Denver. And because as I'm sure you are aware, Dr. Montessori identified that 12 to 15 and zero to three were what she called parallel planes. There's a lot of brain development, massive brain development that happens in both phases of a child's development, which can be really destabilizing for families and children and also provides lots of opportunities. So I was really interested in understanding more about those parallel planes. And I also love babies and toddlers. So wow. that was the one I chose and I did it 2015 to 2017. So that's my training journey. Oh, that's so cool. I mean, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of people would who maybe not familiar with Montessori would think, oh, well, you know, the elementary training would make the most sense to if you're going to then work with middle schoolers but it's so true those parallel planes the zero to I was actually just having this conversation a few weeks ago with someone explaining how toddlerhood and teenager years are so similar <laughs> yeah and I think now that there is an adolescent diploma if you are somebody who wants to become an adolescent guide in the Montessori world take that one because it's certainly the most relevant but any of them apply, right? Like each AMI training level offers a really deep understanding of Dr. Montessori's philosophical approach to understanding human beings and their development. And I think there are, there are powerful lessons to be learned from all of them. We happen to have uh, two elementary trained folks on our staff already. And that was really helpful as well in terms of how to utilize materials in a way that was more familiar to our students, especially our younger students. And I just chose zero to three because I thought it would be interesting and also because I love that age group. So all of them could have been applicable, but that's the one that I picked. Yeah. Oh, cool. I also want to say, so you mentioned that you go, you went to Hershey Montessori school. So for those who don't know, Hershey Montessori school is, you know, extremely famous and, you know, world renowned within the Montessori world. I did my training in London and I think it was the first week of our training. We watched a video about the Hershey Montessori school. <laughs> so it is an extremely excellent Montessori school. Yeah, it's really funny too because like because the adolescent program that is now like the model for so many programs over the globe, that's the what that's where it was was at Hershey. There are still promotional videos about adolescent 
programs that have me as a teenager <laughs> in them. So if you're, if you're ever seeing one of those videos, <laughs> it's very possible that that's so like funny. 13, 13 year old Hannah is there. And okay, I can't tell you how many that. people. <laughs> yeah. Like there are so many people who have said to me, Oh, I saw you in this video. And it's like, Oh my God, it's like eight and eighth grade. That's, that's adorable. And also just like, you know, my eighth grade self is like, I'm humiliated. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned that your mother was doing the uh, adolescent orientation. So um, what was that like doing that program with her? And um, what memories do you have from when you were a child or a teenager of being aware that your mother was a teacher, that she was a Montessorian? Yeah, similar to my reflections on being a Montessori child, like it was completely normal. Um, she was my teacher when I was in middle school. Actually, both of my parents were. So my mom is trained at the both three to six and six to 12 levels, but my parents moved to the property that became the farm school campus for Hershey when I was nine. And my dad worked as the director of residential life and manager of the facilities for a long time. So they both worked together to establish the program. And so they were always just around as guides and teachers in my community. And it felt normal. We had a really, we had a really good relationship during that time, which I think was a real privilege. <laughs> and I was really lucky um, to have that feeling about them. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, things that I that really stand out to me about growing up with Montessorians as parents is that we had a ton of independence. Like even from an early age, I remember having a lot of freedom, right, to go outside and be by myself and uh, go where I wanted within reason, of course. I mean, I always lived in places where you like couldn't really go anywhere, but a huge piece of property like in the middle of the woods. So it's not like there was really a lot of spaces for me to go anyway. But our environment was also really set up to encourage our independence. Like I have vivid memories of packing my lunch when I was like at lower L, right? That was like my job. I had to do it by myself. No one did that for me. Um, another really interesting anecdote about the way that our kitchen is like still set up is that I remember that like our snacks were always in the bottom drawer of the kitchen, which just was like normal to me, you know, like all through my teenage years and everything. I was like, that's just where they are. And I didn't realize until my mom told me later that they set them up that way so that when we were small, we would have access to eating them on our own. And I was like, oh, <laughs> and we still do that. You know, I don't do that in my house now, but <laughs> I don't have a, I don't have a bottom drawer. So that's probably why. Um, anyway, so things like that, you know, we always had access to everything we needed so that we could take care of ourselves independently. The other thing that I think is really powerful when I think about my childhood and adolescence is just how deeply my parents understood child development, which I think was especially important when we were teenagers, right? Our house became like a refuge for our friends. I lived like 45 or 50 minutes away from most of my friends just because of where we were located um, in relation to our high school. But they always came to us because our parents just like got teenagers. They understood like that we needed to be trusted, that we needed to be given a sense of responsibility. We needed to be independent, but they also knew when to like step in and ask questions and give us support. It's a tricky time for parents because teenagers are like, just it's completely normal for teenagers to start look looking away from their families and even push them away. And they start to look and act like adults, even though developmentally they're not there yet. 
Um, and my parents just really understood how to navigate that like really, really delicate dance. And they gave us a lot of other adults in our lives to connect with, which I also think is important. You know, we had other teachers, other friends of theirs we could go to because they understood that when we were navigating weird social situations or things that were happening in our hearts or our brains, we might want to talk about it with someone who's older than us, but not necessarily with them. So they got that. And it was never about them. It was always about making sure we had what we needed. Yeah. Even having spent myself, having spent so much time with toddlers and young children, I'm, I'm like, I didn't, I don't know what I would do with an adolescent. I don't even know <laughs> where I would begin. <laughs> so yeah, that's so wonderful to have grown up with the, you know, parents who have such a deep understanding of child and adolescent development. What drew you to working with adolescents? They're so much fun. <laughs> I, I mean, what's, what's funny is like, it's not like I decided that I wanted to become an adolescent guide in a Montessori setting. It was more like, my experience was much more like, I knew someone who was starting a program who knew me and that I was in Denver and asked me if I was interested. And at the beginning I thought I wasn't. And then over time I realized that I was. And so it wasn't really that I was like, this is what I want to do with my life. But immediately I realized how much I love middle schoolers, which is like such an unusual position to be in. <laughs> yeah, it's wild. Like 90% of the people that I would tell, like, this is my job to would react by saying something like, wow, I can't believe you work with middle schoolers. They're so like fill in the blank, hard, hormonal, difficult, intense, like whatever. And like all those things are true, but the flip side of challenge that middle schoolers present adults is this incredible opportunity for growth and development. And people who I would talk to who like got them would be like, middle schoolers are the best. Like, I love them too. I think my favorite thing about them is that, that there's so much growth and they're so open to learning new things, which you wouldn't expect when you think of like the way that we treat adolescents as a society, but there's so much opportunity there. And, and they also like, from day to day can get over what happened yesterday. You know, they're like, oh, that thing that happened yesterday, like I'm growing in a way that maybe they're not consciously saying this to themselves, but they really do evolve and change so much over a short period of time. So if you can, if you can find that like place to help them do that, it's just really rewarding to watch them go through that. And young adolescents, particularly in my experience, tend to be really flexible. Like often I feel like once we get to 16, 17, 18, it's not that there isn't that opportunity for growth, but they've really started to figure out and establish who they are in their communities and in their social groups. So that's why I really love that like early period. They're also just hilarious. I mean, they're so funny. They're super creative. They can be really, really deep. Like I remember you'll have days where all you talk about is like who's dating who and like who's like in conflict with whom and like whether or not you know I'm stressed because of school and then also I'm talking about the thing that's I'm going to do this weekend like they can be really all over the place and then you'll have a conversation with a middle schooler who will be like have you ever thought about how random it is that like we ended up meeting of all the people <laughs> on the planet that's so wild. And then they'll go back to talking about whatever it was that was socially relevant to them. Like they can be really, really, really profound. I think 
the thing I always tell people about adolescence is like, I, I believe they see the world in like really bright colors, right? Like, I'm not sure if you remember much about your own middle school experience, but you know, when you have your first crush or you like perform worse than you expect to on a test, or like you have a fight with a friend, like you feel so much, you feel it all so intensely. And I think that adults, have a lot to learn from young people in that way they can love so deeply for that reason because they're just like today is the day that matters and everything that happens today is the biggest thing that's ever happened to me which is obviously a little dramatic to us now as adults but I think a lot of us could use a little bit of infusion of that into our adult lives like that reminder of you know how amazing it is to feel so much yeah they're so present they're so in the moment yeah yeah exactly So speaking of adolescence, tell me about what that experience was like, the founding of the Denver Montessori Junior Senior High School. Yeah, it was a lot. (laughs) It was, I mean, it was invigorating. It was inspiring. It was challenging. It was really tiring. Um, The thing that I, I think there's a lot of really tricky things about opening a public Montessori adolescent program in particular. The first is that there aren't very many, right? So there aren't very many models to go off of. All the guides at my program were trained in the AMI model, which is based on a farm. And the academic work comes in the form of projects that ideally have some kind of meaningful work that's connected to the farm or understanding your place within the context of a community as a young person. And so, we modeled our program after Hershey's and then, you know, the other AMI, there's no like AMI accreditation for adolescent programs, but that's sort of the accepted AMI model. And the numbers at a school like Hershey, which is private, are really different than the ones that we were navigating in the public sector. So that was a really huge challenge to us trying to figure out like how to do this project-based hands-on academic work with classes that were twice the size of these other schools that were doing the same model. So there are some blueprints and there's now training, but a lot of what we're doing in the adolescent work is still a really big experiment. Like we're still trying to figure out what works best. And I think it challenges adults to be in some ways like the most Montessori, right? Because the foundational philosophy of Montessori is observing what's happening with young people, experimenting, redesigning, observing again, experimenting, redesigning. Like it's all about observation, reaction, and redesign. And so working with adolescents really challenges you to do that because there is no like step-by-step guide and there is no, these are the lessons that go in X, Y, or Z order. You have to be responsive to the students who show up in your program And they tell you what they need, right? All all children do and teenagers do as well. Like you have to respond to whether or not they need different academic content because they're not engaged or they need firmer boundaries because they're all over the place or they need more flexibility because they're rebelling against rigidity. Like they tell you what they need, but it's exhausting constantly redesigning and experimenting and responding. So I think that's a big challenge. 
some other things that were like unique to our school, we were a standalone adolescent program with four Montessori elementary feeder schools in the district. So we opened because our elementary families wanted a Montessori option for their adolescents. We had a lot of families who knew they wanted to send their children to our school, but we were combining four different school cultures, which was also really challenging when we formed our own. Right, so one of the main goals of an adolescent community in the Montessori pedagogy is to form a really strong sense of community. Like we use that word ad nauseum and every adolescent who's been at a Montessori program is like community. I talk about that all the time. <laughs> We're like, yeah, I mean, that's the point is to like understand how to operate as an individual within the context of a social group. So we wanted to find ways for each individual student to contribute, right? To find their unique, their special way of giving to their community. Montessori called that valorization in an adolescent program, that they would experience valorization when they knew that what they were doing, why they were showing up mattered to the people around them. But because of the size of our program, like that was always a challenge. We had 120 to 130 students in grades seven to nine. So getting to know each one of them and finding that way to support them to contribute was a really worthwhile challenge, but one that was really hard. I mean, some of them didn't even know each other's names for months at a time. And so the numbers made it really challenging to create that strong sense of community. Mm. And then I think, you know, just like opening a Montessori school in a public setting is like, <laughs> is just, is just hard. Like the way that we center quantitative data in education in this country, right? And, and not just quantitative data, but like test scores specifically in English and math mm. means that so much of what we did with adolescents on a daily basis, like getting to know them each as individuals, support them in navigating their relationships, like helping them learn what it is that they love and how they can contribute, how to resolve conflict. Like that's, I feel like 50% of my time some days was just that. It was like helping them figure out how to resolve conflict. And then how they could then grow and transform through that process. Like all of that was never part of our evaluation as a public school. Mm, right. And so much, so much of, so much of your success as a public school is determined by this rating that's determined by a framework that is almost entirely quantitative data, not entirely, but <laughs> mostly. And so that's just really, really hard. But that is all to say that like, it was also like the most creative, inspiring thing that I maybe have ever done. It just to be working with a group of people who so deeply believe in making this kind of education accessible, right? To students who couldn't afford a private school, to students from diverse backgrounds, to students who live in the city, right? Like working in collaboration with other adults on a project like that, you like really, it's like, it's like a mission and you really, when you really believe in it, it can be really, really invigorating. Yeah. Wow. Um, I'd love to hear about how foreign languages were taught and, or how bilingual and non-English speaking students were supported. Yeah. Um, we were always really constricted by size and budget. So we offered Spanish, um, as a foreign language. And there are high school graduation requirements in foreign language, at least in Denver public schools. So we had to offer 
um, that to our students who would get, we're getting high school credits so ninth grade and above. We always dreamed of offering more bilingual opportunities for students, especially because one of our feeder schools was bilingual, English, Spanish. Um, but it always seemed to be a little bit harder than we could manage <laughs> among all the other challenges we were dealing with. So we offered for, Spanish as a foreign language. We had a, a Spanish teacher um, who's actually from the Dominican Republic, which is, uh, she's really, really awesome. And um, she offered like mostly what you would consider like traditional array of Spanish classes, beginner, intermediate, when we had capacity and students who were at that level, a more like advanced conversation class for more fluent speakers. Um, I always dreamed of offering like bilingual projects. So in, in Montessori adolescent programs, we have two like major academic areas. One is called humanities and that's your more typical like history, language arts, English, and then occupations, which is like science. Although everything in a Montessori adolescent program is integrated. So the ideal, the ideal is that you're touching on math and history and English language arts in the science occupation. And you're touching on all those things in a humanities project as well. My dream was always to have some that were bilingual. So you could offer readings and experiences and opportunities in two languages. I never got there, <laughs> but if I could do it again someday, maybe I would. Um, we had lots of bilingual students in our program. We rarely had non-English speaking students because of the way that we had students matriculate to us. They almost all came from those four feeder schools, which meant that they had already been um, in school in the United States for at least three years. But we had lots and lots of folks who spoke two or more languages at home, mostly Spanish. And that's consistent with the demographics here in Denver, that we just have a lot of Spanish speaking families in this city. I think some things that I really noticed, um, and this is anecdotal observation, it's nothing I, um, I don't have any quantitative data to support this, but a lot of those Spanish speaking students were bilingual, but not biliterate. Mm. So they grew up speaking Spanish and were fluent orally, but did not learn to read or write in Spanish because they did exclusively in English at school. There were a handful who went to that bilingual elementary program who could do both, but it wasn't at all a critical mass of our bilingual students. So it was tricky navigating how to support them in continuing their own home language development, especially if they couldn't really read in Spanish. Um, we would often have, because our foreign language offerings were limited, some of our fluent Spanish speakers would take a Spanish class alongside non-Spanish speakers and serve as tutors or TAs and then like teaching assistants and then also learn how to read and write in Spanish because they didn't know how. So they were learning more cognitively, more consciously how the language was structured and how to read it and how to put sentences together and interpret it um, in the written word alongside students who didn't understand it. I'm not quite sure like in the end how successful that was, but it was one way that, cause they still had to get foreign language credit as high school students in the US. So it was one way that we sort of navigated that interesting sort of dynamic. I had several students who really pushed themselves when they grew up speaking Spanish in the home, but didn't necessarily know how to read and write. Who got really into like, I'm gonna become biliterate by the time I'm in college. Cause I know that this is gonna get me a job or something, you know, yeah. down the line, which is so true, especially 
in a community like ours, like being bilingual and biliterate is a huge value add um, as a young person when you're looking for jobs. So they got really interested in that and would serve as translators, you know, for a newsletter or um, thing, you know, communications home to families. We wanted to make sure we're always in both languages. Mm-hmm. So they would help with that. And they, I think some of them experienced valorization through that process. But yeah. then on the flip side, like there are some who would want to fit in with their English speaking friends and like wouldn't really want to speak in Spanish. Or sometimes they would try and speak in Spanish to each other so that the teacher couldn't understand. But then they would get a teacher who they didn't know spoke Spanish like me and <laughs> people don't understand <laughs> it. And yeah, teenagers are just hilarious. <laughs> I'd love to hear more about the parent outreach. So you said you all the communications went home in English and Spanish. What are some other ways that you connected with the adolescents' families? Good question. Such an important question <laughs> because they really need to be connected with. Um, we structured our support for students and families in what a lot of adolescent programs do, which is called an advisory model or an advisement model. So each student had an advisor who was their point of contact the whole three years they were in the program. So for grade seven to nine, I would have the same student all three years. And those students start and end their day with their advisor. My role was to support them completely holistically. So, I mean, I did everything from like helping kids clean out their backpacks, like every single week for some of them to helping them make a homework plan. So they would stay on top of their homework and meet all of their work deadlines to have difficult conversations about what was going on in their home life or their relationships. And that also meant that as the advisor, I was the point person for all family contact. So I was in touch with all of their families, some of them just twice a year at our family advisor conferences. Some of them I texted like three or four times a week, depending (laughs) on what their students needed. Um, And so I was really involved with my students' families. It sort of depends on the advisor and the nature of their availability and relationship, but I always knew and felt like that partnership, family teacher partnership was essential for supporting students, whether from like an academic check-in standpoint, or if we had a student who was behaviorally challenging, like building that positive relationship and sending home positive feedback was a really good way to then when something challenging happened, like that parent really knew that I, I believed in their child and I really like had their best interest in mind. And so when I sat down to say like, these things happened at school today and like, we have to talk through a plan because this is not, this is not okay. They were in, like they were with me, they were partnering with me. So those are things that I did like on an individual level on a larger school level, we had several whole school community events a year. And we really encouraged families to come join their students for those. We had like a harvest festival in the fall and then a spring festival in the spring. And each student was required to share something about what they were doing in the community, whether it was like a specific academic project or a leadership role they'd taken on or like, you know, a cutting board they'd made to sell in the microeconomy business. Um, Each student had to present something. And so we pushed really hard to make sure that families had at least one person there to show up and support their students. And that also gave us the chance to interact with families in a different setting that wasn't just about like how their students were doing. We had like a chili cook-off that was like a fundraiser and like there were multiple 
theatrical performances every year. So lots of also like community building opportunities and parent education. We did that once or twice a year. I always think that it's like the thing that schools should be doing more and more and more of all the time. But that is like the last thing that everyone has capacity for, right? Is to get, and parents too. It's tough for parents to come to school, um, especially if they're working or if they're working multiple jobs, but finding opportunities to educate parents, not just about what we were doing in school, like what is Montessori at the adolescent level, but also about specific ways they could help their students was really important. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's wonderful. Um, so now tell me about the work that you do. Uh, you said you do coaching and observations for the school now. So what is that like? What are some of the challenges that you coach teachers through? Good question. Um, I, in my role as program director, that was a lot of my job. And actually Denver as a public school district has a pretty, pretty cool model for um, teachers supporting and evaluating other teachers. So they call it, they call them senior team leads. So a teaching staff will elect or nominate a teacher to become what they call a senior team lead. And then that person has a decreased teaching load so that they can go in other people's classrooms and observe and give feedback and coach. So it's like a peer-to-peer -peer coaching format, which I think is actually really cool. So we sort of modified that to serve as we do with everything in Montessori public schools, we like took what was working in that model and then added and changed and modified depending on what we needed in our specific community. So that was a lot of the work that I did when I was working there full time. So now I'm doing a lot of observations side by side with the leadership team. So we go in, we try to at least every week and we are still beginning of school year. So we're doing a lot of baseline um, qualitative data gathering, just anecdotally what we're seeing. I created along with um, a former colleague of mine, a self-reflection rubric for adolescent guides, right? So guides could kind of measure like, here are the things that I'm doing according to Montessori pedagogy really well. And here are some things that like, I feel like I haven't even thought about or I need to be doing better. And so we've taken that rubric and we're using it to help us sort of, you know, figure out what are some areas of focus for the program as a whole. And so we're doing that sort of holistic observation and data gathering and doing that observation side by side with leaders is really helpful because we all see for the most part, the same things. And we can have like a debrief conversation about like, this is going really well, or this is um, kind of challenging. Seems like this is working in this classroom or this is not working in this classroom. So it gives us a really good sense of what's happening all over. So I'm doing that on a bigger scale, helping them kind of assess what are the needs and the highest leverage points of growth for the whole team. And then individually I'm supporting teachers. So I'm working side by side with one of their coaches who's brand new at coaching and meeting with teachers every other week and doing some observation in their classrooms and giving them points of feedback for growth and such. I mean, what we talk about completely depends on what the teacher is navigating. I love to coach from a place of like what teachers want to work on, right? Like, what is it that you, because every teachers are like the most self-reflective, sometimes self-deprecating people out there, right? They're like, we all know as teachers that we need to grow. And so I have found that it's pretty straightforward to ask a teacher, like, what is it that you know you need to be working on? Like, what can I be looking for to support you in that area? But it's like everything from basic classroom management to 
supporting guides and understanding what we call an adolescent education side-by-side work. So adolescents don't really wanna be told what to do, right? And yet they need a ton of support and structure. And so rather than saying like, I mean, we do give assignments, right? So it's like, these are the instructions for the thing you need to be doing. But in order to actually get them engaged, a lot of what they require is to sit down and actually do the first steps of the work with them. So to feel like a partner in that work, like I'm not making you do something that I wouldn't myself do. And so that's a really tricky thing to learn as a teacher, I think, and as as any adult is to how to sit down and approach a student, figure out where they are, like what their developmental need is or what their specific need on this piece of work is, and then help them without doing it for them or without making them feel like you're just telling them what to do. So that's like a lot of what I really like to focus on when I'm supporting teachers because it's a hard thing to learn and it's also really, really important. Switching gears a little bit, I would love to hear about the bilingual yoga class that you teach. That is so cool. How did that come about and what is that like? Yeah, we don't, unfortunately, we don't, we don't teach it anymore. Um, the, okay. Our schedules changed a lot because, because of the pandemic. I mean, what hasn't? But um, when we started it, my studio owner was really interested in finding lots of different ways to increase accessibility for communities who like wouldn't necessarily walk through our doors. And so this was one of them, like there are like several approaches that she took. So this was a few years ago. Um, it's it was so interesting because like I speak Spanish pretty well. I would never like I would never say I'm fluent. You know, I think especially when you do speak a second language, you're like much more hesitant to say like I'm absolutely fluent because I'm not. I mean, I'm conversational. I'm proficient. I can navigate a conversation. I've had to make phone calls to families that are about disciplinary issues like those, like I've done those things before. But the other thing about teaching yoga is like, there's so much command language. You know, if you think about it, you're saying things like lift your right leg high and step through, you know, rise up to low lunge. Like that's not a form of the language that I would typically use in a conversation, especially in a school setting. So we started out doing Spanish only. And then we got feedback that folks really wanted both languages to be taught. And so we transitioned it to a bilingual class. So I would teach, I would like say something in Spanish and then say it again in English, which was, I'm not sure in the end, like <laughs> what's most effective. It was good for my brain, that's for sure. Like switching back and forth between the two. And we had a lot of English speakers who would come because they wanted to support the class. And also because they were like, this is such a cool way to get exposure to a different language. And it really makes you present. I mean, when you don't speak the language the yoga class is being taught in, you have to listen like really, really closely. And so I had a lot of students who came for that reason as well. We did get some folks who spoke Spanish, but mostly bilingual folks. So we didn't get to the point where we were attracting monolingual Spanish speaking um, students, which is what we always wanted. It was a free class as well. So that was that was another way that we were trying to get people in. Um, and then the pandemic happened and like everything that was free that we offered, we had to stop offering because yoga studios everywhere all over the country took a huge hit because they had to close for months at a time. So it was cool. It was hard, <laughs> it was really hard for my brain, but it was neat. And I would, you know, I would definitely do it again if I had the chance. 
Yeah. When, when you were saying that about it, it really makes you be present. It reminded me of when I studied abroad in Italy in college, uh, my friends and I signed up for a dance class through the university. Um, and it was entirely in Italian. And I learned so many like body part names that I probably had learned in beginning Italian class, but like in one year out the other. So I really like had to learn what those body parts were and like all the instructions in Italian. It was really great for my, for my language development. So I can see that being wonderful for like English speakers who are trying to improve their Spanish. It's, it's a great way to, to keep you on your toes. <laughs> Yeah, I had to learn a lot of interesting words, you know, because like I use a lot of words in yoga teaching in English that I don't really use that much in Spanish, like elevate and lengthen and like engage, like things that I don't as a command that I don't really say very often. So I definitely increased my vocabulary a lot. It's been years since I taught the a couple years since I taught the class. So I would have to go back and look at my vocabulary list again before I did it again. But it was yeah. a really cool experience. Oh, that's so cool. Well, we've covered so many things. Um before I let you go, I would love to hear what advice you have for parents navigating the adolescent years, or maybe those who are looking ahead to the adolescent years, um, especially for those who are interested in, you know, Montessori with adolescents, but might not have access to Montessori resources for adolescents in their communities. Yeah, which is like a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, there just aren't enough programs. Um, push your school to start an adolescent program. That's something that parents can do more than anybody else, I think, um, because private or public, right? The, the client or the constituent is parents. And so I feel really strongly that um, from my experience working in public schools, but from also my experience knowing lots of folks who worked in private schools, when parents ask for something that they really want, schools are more inclined to respond. So first and foremost, if you want an adolescent program, push your administration to at least start having that conversation. Um, I, oh my gosh, there's so many things that I feel like parents like should keep in mind. I, I mean, the first thing I would do is like learn about adolescent brain development. It's so much easier to work with teenagers when you understand what's going on in their brains. I think that probably the same is true for toddlers, right? Like you know, we have that horrible phrase in this culture, the terrible twos, because oh. they start saying no to everything. But the minute as a Montessori and you learn that it's because they are literally learning to under to understand that they are an independent being who can say yes or no, that this is a development of the will, your whole approach and, and appreciation of what's going on for them changes. The same is true for teenagers, right? Like when you understand that like evolutionarily teenagers are designed to move away from the family and start to create their own social unit. It's much easier to get why it is that they're rejecting you as an adult and <laughs> wanting to hang out with their friends all the time. So I think the more parents can understand what's going on in their brains and the development that's happening, just the easier it is to like be patient with the process, even if in the moment you're not quite sure how to respond. I think the other piece is like, I think I was saying this earlier when I was talking about my own experience as a teenager, but adolescents are going to push away the adults in their lives. And at the same time, they need adult support and guidance more than ever. So find adults who your young people connect with. That could be a coach or a music teacher or a choir director or a teacher or like, like the cool auntie, like whoever that is that they can go to and you can push them to go to because they don't want to talk to you, then they'll at least 
hopefully it's someone you trust, but they'll get somebody who is an adult who has like a fully formed frontal lobe to help them <laughs> navigate a situation. Um, teenagers don't have a fully formed executive functioning system. Like that's what's really under construction in the adolescent years is the, is the frontal lobe. And so they, they can't organize themselves. Some are really amazing at it, but a lot of them just can't, they can't, they like, there's, there's not, they're not capable of like keeping organized. So my students hated that I made them do this all the time, but I made my, my students use a planner. I was like, you have to use a planner. You have to write this down because there's evidence even that adolescents will say right before they leave school, like, this is the thing I'm going to do tonight. But by the time they get home, they will have forgotten that and they won't do it. And we know that about their brains. And so committing them to, to like building routine and writing down, like just like toddlers, again, like they need routine and they need ritual and they need structure and they might rebel against that, but they really need it. And the more that parents, I think, can give them information about why they're doing what they're doing, right? Like I, I worked with parents who were really firm about not allowing their young people on social media, which is another thing that I would be like, oh, just be very careful <laughs> about social media, especially with what we're learning now about, you know, Facebook's internal research about what it does to self-image and depression and all that. Like just be very, very careful about social media use, but explain to them why it is that you're wary of it, right? Give them information, like put things in context for them. Even if they don't seem like they're going to understand, they will, or they'll they'll start to internalize it. I think the like the biggest piece is and the hardest piece, especially when you live with them every day or work with them every day is to treat them as if they're already adults in some ways, right? Like you're still going to have to set boundaries and make decisions because they can't do those things themselves. The Dr. Montessori has a quote, I'm gonna read it because it's really good. She said in, in the, um, there's three appendices in from childhood to adolescence where she talks about what adolescent education should look like. They're like the most important text for us Montessori adolescent people. She says the adolescent must never be treated as a child for that is a stage of life that he has surpassed. It is better to treat an adolescent as if he had greater value than he actually shows than as if he had less and let him feel that his merits and self-respect are disregarded. And this is like so hard, right? To give them that level of independence to trust them and to like hope that <laughs> hope that they do the right thing in some situations, but to really treat them as if they are emerging adults rather than like coming out of childhood because they don't want to be children anymore for the most part. Everyone's different, but for the most part as a group, they really want to show that they are gaining their independence, that they are adults, that they can act like adults. And they'll do that whether or not you support them, in that, right? Like they will... They will do it no matter what. And so the more that you can help structure that for them and share your thinking around this, this is why this routine is in place for us in our house, or this is why I'm asking you to limit your screen time. I think the more that shows them respect and, and, you know, and just other things like get them outside and respect that they need to be in person with their friends. Like, they're also developing empathy during this time. Like this is a really important time for empathy development. And so that a lot of that happens in person, right? Like when we look at other people's eyes and we read their faces and um, 
yeah, just being in like human form with other people, I feel like is really so essential for their development, but can be really hard to navigate when you are a family and you have to drive them places and, and all yeah. that. So, yeah. Oh my gosh. That was great advice. I loved that quote too. That was beautiful. And my last question is, since you have the perspective of, um, you know, being a teacher and administrator working in that area, what advice do you mm -hmm. have for parents um, of adolescents or of any age for partnering with their child's school and teachers? Do it, partner, <laughs> find ways, find ways to get involved. I think, um, I think it's just, I mean, this is a tricky question for me. I think it really depends on your school context, right? And like what they offer. Um, I think that, especially for teenagers, like finding ways to hear about what's going on at school through your young person, through your child, through your teenager, and then following up, right, with the adults in the community feels really important. At all of our family advisor conferences, like we helped, we gave them a lot of structure, but it was the students themselves who had to lead the conference and say, like, this is something I'm proud of, this is something I'm working on, like whatever it is that we asked them to share. But we put it the onus on the students. And then we served as question askers or clarifiers as the adults in the room. I think the more that you can partner with T as a parent, the more that you can partner with the teacher to get information, to be open to whatever it is they're suggesting, to support their student at home, right? The better. And at the same time, like, especially in a Montessori program, like with teachers who are trained, understand that the Montessori training is more than how to teach. It's, it's really understanding how human beings develop. And so trusting that they do understand that and that they're working really hard to support your student in the context of a whole group of students. Um, but for sure, that partnership feels really important. And, and if you can observe, like even when your child is already in school, um, I just think it's such an amazing way to see the whole picture, right? Not just what your student is doing, but what's happening in a whole classroom or in a whole school community. Just come in and see what's going on. Like, don't have conversation like don't like, try to interfere like none of those things but just come in and say can I just I'm just curious can I just come in for an hour and see what's happening um I think that can be really really cool teenagers will not want you in their classroom probably <laughs> but <laughs> typically there will be opportunity to see other classrooms other lessons in your program and so I think I think that can be a really powerful way well, thank you so much, Hannah. This was such an amazing conversation. I feel like I have so much to think about, like reflecting on my own adolescent school experience and then thinking about just how Montessori really is like, I don't know, uh, it, it takes you through all of, all of human development. Like so many people just think of Montessori, associate Montessori with preschool, maybe early elementary, but it really is a blueprint for life. That's like the phrase that comes to my mind. I don't know if that even makes sense, but yeah. Yes, absolutely. It is. I mean, yeah, when I think about this woman who, you know, who spent, I mean, first of all, who had like multiple careers, right? Like she was an engineer and then she was a doctor and then she was like, whatever it is that she was, like she was this incredible generator of synthesizing child development. I mean, wow, like what an incredible human. Um, 
Yeah, it is a it is a real approach to human development. And that is, I think, something that we don't talk about often enough because we so narrowly look at, like you said, Montessori as like something for three to six year olds or a teaching method, right? Like it's a curriculum or a teaching method. And it's or not it's materials a, that you can buy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Or it's it's a philosophical approach to supporting humans to develop optimally to meet their fullest potential. I mean, it's amazing, right? And I think that that piece for me feels like the strongest right now when I'm not working in the classroom, but understanding like how essential Montessori is to even our own lives as adults, right? Who work in community with each other. And and the last the last piece that you know I will always reflect on is how much Montessori can push us outside of the like the norms and expectations that society, especially in this country, right, have for children. Because that's the one thing about like being a parent of an adolescent, I think, in a Montessori program. There's a lot of like, well, why are you doing it this way? And like, what does this have to do with like school? You know, but when you come to really appreciate and understand like how how deeply we are wanting to support the full development of the human being, I think it can be really profound. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Hannah. For more information about AMI Montessori training at the adolescent level, you can visit the International Montessori Training Institute's website at montessori-imti.org. You can follow the Hershey Montessori School on Instagram at Hershey Montessori. You can find me on Instagram at multilingual.montessori and on my website at multilingualmontessori.org. You can find links to everything in the episode description. Make sure you're subscribed to the Multilingual Montessori podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review on whatever app you're listening through. It helps more people find the show, and I really do read every single one. Another wonderful way to support the podcast is to share it with someone who you think would enjoy it as well. I'll be back with new episodes and new interviews with Montessorians, educators, parents, and child development experts in September. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time.